Virginia Woolf, Mrs. Dalloway, Part 5, Concluding Thoughts. Mrs. Dalloway from 1925 is a novel about a dinner party. We might recall the passage from A Room of One's Own from 1929, where Wolf describes how novels are valued. This is an important book, the critic assumes, because it deals with war. This is an insignificant book because it deals with the feelings of women in a drawing room. In another chapter of that book, she writes, What I find deplorable is that nothing is known about women before the 18th century. I have no model in my mind to turn about this way and that. Here am I asking why women did not write poetry in the Elizabethan age, and I am not sure how they were educated, whether they were taught to write, whether they had sitting rooms to themselves, how many women had children before they were 21, what in short they did from eight in the morning till eight at night, end quote. Mrs. Dalloway is one example of a novel that explores just what they did from eight in the morning till eight at night. As we noted last time at the party, the news of Septimus's death announced by the Bradshaws is the knot that unites the two different plots. The two characters have not met each other, but there was a scene from very early in the novel where Septimus saw Clarissa from across the street and the novel briefly describes her from his perspective, but the two do not know each other. Wolf clearly intended Septimus to be Clarissa's double, according to her introduction to the 1928 edition of the novel. There are several reasons why we might say that this is so. Some critics have suggested Septimus's mind is locked into what happened in the 18th year of the 20th century, while Clarissa's mind is locked into what happened in the 18th year of her life, so there is a kind of symmetry there. Both suffer from two great disasters of the 20th century, he from the war and she from the influenza pandemic of 1918-1919, and both have been marked by these disasters, Septimus very obviously because of his shell shock, but Clarissa as well. There are several references in the novel to how her illness has marked her. She seems older, paler, and there are some concerns about her heart. Both quote the same line from Shakespeare's Cymbeline, Fear no more, the heat of the sun. Curiously, bird imagery is periodically associated with both characters. One is referred to as beak-nosed and the other as beak-faced. Clarissa has a touch of the bird about her, of the jay, as a passerby thinks early in the novel. He is referred to as being like a hawk. At one point, Septimus, quote, could feel Rezia's mind like a bird falling from branch to branch and always alighting quite rightly, end quote. The screen in his room, the screen from behind which he imagines Evans coming to him, has blue swallows on it. And at the party, Clarissa's curtains have birds of paradise on them. Three times the winds blow these curtains. In the first case, they blow out, and it seemed as if there were a flight of wings into the room, right out, then sucked back. Perhaps Septimus's soul or presence. He comes in, an uninvited guest, after having leaped out of his window. 
both characters are joined in their psychological depths. In her diary, Wolf referred to this as her tunneling process. She went on to say that the caves shall connect and each comes to daylight at the present moment. The word plunge unites the two characters and is used in connection with life and ultimately death. Critics have observed that Clarissa plunges into life and Septimus into death. The word is used a total of five times in the novel, all by or about Clarissa, and the last time including Septimus. The first two uses of the word occur at the beginning of the third paragraph of the novel. What a lark! What a plunge! For so it had always seemed to her when, with a little squeak of the hinges which she could hear now, she had burst open the French windows and plunged at Borton into the open air. A little later in the novel, Clarissa plunged into the very heart of the moment, transfixed it there, the moment of this June morning. Later, at her party, she is thinking about young people and why they have no need of talking because their presence is to shout, embrace, swing, be up at dawn, carry sugar to ponies, kiss and caress the snouts of adorable chows, and then, all tingling and streaming, plunge and swim. These first four uses of the word all concern throwing oneself into life. The fifth and final reference occurs during Clarissa's reflection on Septimus's suicide. But this young man who had killed himself, had he plunged holding his treasure? If it were now to die, t'were now to be most happy, she had said to herself once, coming down in white. The reference here, if it were now to die, t'were now to be most happy, is from Shakespeare's Othello. In the middle of my party, here's death, Clarissa thinks when she first learns the news of Septimus's death. Septimus cannot feel, but as Clarissa relives his death, she feels it graphically. She always feels for the victim of an accident when she hears of it. In this case, she not only feels the physical reality of his death, but its meaning, what he had intended by it. Death was defiance. Death was an attempt to communicate. Clarissa equates Septimus's death with her having once thrown a shilling coin into the serpentine. He had flung it away, plunged holding his treasure. She sees his death as a gift to her, a death he suffers for her so that she might live. Clarissa feels a renewed sense of the mystery of life seen in her fascination with the ordinary routines of the old woman in the room opposite hers. It has sometimes been said that the men in the novel fall apart, while the women are strong, that the men are feminized. For example, Peter weeps a number of times and at one place is referred to as not altogether manly, though women seem to find this quality attractive in him, and he loves the company of women in return. Richard is inarticulate about love. After that big build-up about his intentions to tell Clarissa how much he loves her, he is unable to do so when he gives her the flowers, though she understands him. And, of course, the biggest example in this pattern of men falling apart is Septimus, who is shattered. 
And he's also feminized in the fact that just before his suicide, he assists Rezia in sewing the decorations onto the hat. Of the novel, the philosopher Paul Ricoeur in volume two of Time and Narrative has said that the narrative is pulled ahead by the events of the day, however small. At the same time, it is pulled back by memory. These moments of memory paradoxically make the narrated time advance by delaying it, also enriching and amplifying the moments. Another critic has said that Wolf used the single day as a unity to show that there is no such thing as a single day. The striking of the clock, what Ricoeur calls monumental time, as it is associated with figures of authority, is important for the relation that the various protagonists establish with these marks of time. For example, when the clock strikes six, it is to inscribe within public time the supremely private act of Septimus's suicide. Ricoeur also sees two temporal poles in the novel, the deep agreement between monumental time and the figures of authority epitomized by Dr. Bradshaw and the terror of history represented by Septimus. Other temporal experiences, that of Clarissa first and foremost, and that of Peter Walsh to a lesser degree, are ordered in relation to these poles in order to explore the experience of the mortal discordance between personal time and monumental time, of which Septimus is both the hero and the victim. I spoke earlier about this association between monumental time, or official time, and figures of authority, most notably Dr. William Bradshaw. It is after the visit of the Smiths to Dr. Bradshaw when the clocks of Harley Street chime and the narrator tells us that the clocks counseled submission, upheld authority, and pointed out in chorus the supreme advantages of a sense of proportion. Even using that word proportion that is associated with Bradshaw. Clarissa has the quality of presence. To be, to exist, to sum it all up in the moment as she passed, as the narrator tells us. Her party is a gift, a gift that is not even really recognized as such by the guests. It's a gift freely given, without expectation of any thanks for reciprocation, like the coin she tossed into the serpentine. The novel's closing sentence, for there she was, underscores her presence, in the present that is rich with memory, given force by the gift of the dead man to Clarissa. Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway is one of the great modernist novels of the 20th century. Mrs. Dalloway and T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland are two key texts of the early 20th century that helped to establish the modernist movement. It is interesting that both of these texts involve a person in the present coming to grips with all that has gone before. In The Wasteland, it is the weight of all the other texts traditions, and myths that press in upon the present and give it meaning, even while they make it difficult to live under the weight of all that. And in Mrs. Dalloway, we see the power of memory. Even the most minor passers-by, who seem of no importance on the surface, 
possess rich bodies of memories and pasts that are with them, even as they anticipate the future. This brings us back again to Augustine's ideal of the threefold present, a present of present things, a present of past things, and a present of future things.